This is Pain Refrain. Well, we are really excited today, you guys. We have Walt Fritz joining us on Pain Reframed this week. Walt is a physical therapist and an educator from up in New York there. And he's going to talk to us about a lot of different things today. And we're kind of excited to see where this conversation goes. So Jeff and I are joined by Walt Fritz. Walt, could you start off by giving us a little background of who you are and what you're doing in the world of PT? Sure. Thanks for having me here, Liz and Jeff. I appreciate it. A physical therapist in upstate New York, not New York City. People don't know that there's another part of the state, and I live in a relatively rural area about a half hour south of Rochester. I've been a PT since 1985, a long time ago, back before they even had the master's in physical therapy. And, you know, we just graduated with a bachelor's in PT and went out and did what we did. And, you know, doing what I did, I've been in a lot of different fields in PT from general outpatient to pediatrics, developmental disabilities, home care, and then finally my own private practice and manual therapy-based private practice I've been doing for close to 20 years now. I am also an educator. I have my own line of seminars that I teach to Gosh, whoever was willing to pay me money, right? But, you know, it used to be primarily PTs and massage therapists when I was doing my old gig, which was myofascial release. And then uh, about six or seven years ago, I got sort of invited into the speech pathology community to teach some manual therapy for voice and swallowing, which has really become my number one, my passion in terms of my writing, as well as the primary class that I teach anymore. It's about 95% of that is manual therapy, voice and swallowing disorders. So, you know, I'm 60 now and it's been like, I'm starting out a new career and I'm and starting fresh and it's really been exciting. So, you know, in a nutshell, that's who I am and where I'm, I'm at and kind of maybe where I'm headed. Walt, can you unpack a little bit for us as far as what exactly I'm intrigued? First of all, how did you wind up addressing that area? You know, in physio, that's not a real commonly discussed either disorder that we treat or place that we intervene. Can you talk a bit about how you wound up treating that space and maybe just give us a little bit about what exactly you do to create outcomes um, using manual therapy to address those disorders? Absolutely. Jeff, within our own physical therapy literature, there's, I don't want to say a fair amount, but there's a couple of interesting papers in Physical Therapy Journal and a few others from physical therapists who are sort of crossing into that field of muscle tension, dysphonia, dysphagia, which is painful or difficult swallowing, that sort of thing. And you know, some interesting bridge studies where they're combining a manual, or I'm sorry, a physical therapy and a speech pathologist type approach, doing a lot of different interventions, including manual therapy, doing exercise, doing traditional voice therapy or whatever it is. So PTs aren't exactly totally unknown in the voice and swallowing field, but they're certainly not not a common aspect of it. We often would be maybe given the, the patient to deal with you know, maybe the fibrotic tissue or the weakness or the postural issue or the strength, whatever that might be, post-head neck cancer surgery or whatever. Traditionally, like you said, it's not our domain, but the more literature I go through, the more papers I find from physical therapists, you know, sort of saying, hey, we might have a voice, no pun intended, a voice in this world as well of, of voice and swallowing disorders. Myself, I got an invitation back in 2013 to teach a one-of class in Chicago a speech pathologist was doing a training for manual therapies, myofascial release, which we can get into my myofascial release, dark history in a little bit if you want. But they were doing a one-of class, a two-day workshop for speech pathologists on, on introducing manual therapies in the field. And they invited myself 
to do the hands-on portion of the work, as well as a, an ENT physician from New York City to do basically the intro science work. And from that point, it's just been something that really intrigued me. I saw there was a, a genuine interest in it. And you know what? It's just, for me, it's taken off. The ironic thing is, even though you said that it's not something you and I as PTs do, there's very few people teaching, I don't want to say this too loudly, teaching manual therapy for speech pathologists, except the other main one is through Chow, which is a, a larger company. And they have a physical therapist who's teaching speech pathologists uh, manual therapy for dysphagia. So it's ironic that the PTs are the ones who are coming in and, and basically teaching bridge work to the speech pathologist. Interesting. So I wasn't aware that speech pathologists aren't really, if I understand you correctly, they're not really into doing manual work on the throat. I can give a little historical perspective. Since the early 90s, there's been an emergence of something called manual circumlaryngeal treatment, which is basically more of a, of a manipulative type work for the larynx, for the hyoid, trying to reduce locally the muscle tone, that sort of thing to improve voice. And that's been around since 1990. It's, you know, a small segment of the speech pathology community do manual circumlaryngeal work. But I would say, you know, over the past however many years, that's 30 years now, that's just been growing. There's a bigger body of evidence out there. There's a body of evidence that's sort of paralleling the body of evidence in the physical therapies, at least when it comes to manual therapy, that the whole story that, you know, when you grab a tissue or the body part and you feel something hard and ropey and you say, oh my goodness, there's too much muscle tension there, or there's a trigger point, or there's a muscle spasm there. And, you know, we do our thing there. And it's sort of the what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas approach, right? We feel that tension, that spasm, that trigger point. We do something with it and we say, oh gosh, look, I helped with that trigger point or that muscle spasm. It's no longer there. And that's still 1990. I go through the literature and you read it in the speech pathology literature, just like in the PT literature. But then over the past 30 years, you're seeing that understanding of what happens when we touch somebody and whether it's pick something, whether it's a ropey calf or muscle tension in the larynx region, it's that the concept of the cascade approach from peripheral to central and back down to peripheral. And there's some lovely papers in the speech pathology community that they're just, you know, they're unpackaging that just like we're doing in the physical therapies and all the other therapies. Walt, I think that leads perfectly into something that you and I talked about when we were talking about doing this interview and you alluded to with your your dark history, so to speak, with myofascial release. Can you give us a rundown of, I guess, how you were educated and how you practiced in the first part of your career and then how that evolved into your current thinking and current practice? Sure. So... I'm going to take ownership of most of this for the lack of critical thinking skills versus only having a bachelor's. I, don't, I can't blame that because I really don't think it was their fault. I got out of school and I started practicing. You had to take continuing ed because that's what we have to do to get our CEUs. And for the first five years, I, I basically took whatever was cheap and local just to be able to renew my license. And then somebody dangled that tempting bait of one of the modality empires in front of me. And I got I sort of got arm twisted in to take a myofascial release class from a, from one of the better known educators. We'll keep names out of it. And that was back in 1992. Took a whole bunch of his classes in quick succession, which is how they're encouraged to be done. I now, in hindsight, call it getting dragged into the rabbit hole. 
of a belief system that if you're only in the rabbit hole, it's all echo, right? You're just hearing each other talk. And critical thinking was discouraged because it's all about evidence base and who needs evidence when we have outcomes. I'm being sarcastic and paraphrasing some of the stuff that I that I was taught, really. And I did a lot of that, call it alternative medicine modalities of malapashulis, cranial psychotherapy, zero balancing, and some other column energy-based practices. And I liked it. It was it was ego gratifying. It was very, you know, you put your cloak on and you you were a healer in a way. And I practiced that way for a long time. I ended up working for the educator who I learned from for about 10 years, traveling around the country, assisting in his seminar. So I learned the whole seminar gig that way. And you know what? Finally, in about 2005, 2006, it all just sort of imploded over a difference in opinion that had nothing to do with me actually developing critical thinking skills. That didn't happen until later. But it was really just a power struggle. I left that community and then started looking for people who would be my friend in terms of the physical therapy community, be my friend in terms of I need to do something. I like what I do with my hands, but I was more and more not liking how that work was being explained from that mouthwash release perspective, from the energy perspective, talking about emotions being trapped in the fascia and all the stuff that that we were we were taught and we learned ways to deal with that that I look back at it now and realize you know it's pretty far outside of my scope of practice some of the things I was doing with patients but you know from then on I I found some people in more the neuroscience based community when it comes to physical therapy who acted as informal mentors for me and sort of led me along the path to say okay we don't have to throw out what we've been doing but are there better ways to explain what we're doing right are there ways that it's not just the people in our rabbit hole who will believe this story because nobody else will because it doesn't make any sense of emotions being trapped in fashion and all this stuff. It took me a while. It really took me a bunch of years to really listen and read and understand and train with some other people and just sort of sit back and say, okay, it's time to actually critically evaluate what I was saying in the past and what I was saying now and how I want to frame all this. That's great history, and I really appreciate your intellectual humility on you know, being so deep into something, but still being willing to kind of pop your head up and look around. I'd be really curious to hear from you. I mean, you've been practicing all this time. I'd be curious to hear, since you've kind of done a little bit of, a, of an about face and, and changed the way that you look at what you're doing, and certainly the way you explain what you're doing, how much has actually what you're doing physically changed? Have you found that you've moved away from manual therapy as your thoughts on mechanisms have evolved? Or do you feel like what you actually do physically is relatively similar, but there's been a real drastic change in the rest of it? I would say maybe there's something along the continuum between those two extremes. I still use manual therapy as my primary intervention, but it's one that's couched in the encouragement of movement and the encouragement of functional movement, be it exercise or strengthening, whatever. You know, in the past, it was more of a passive modality. It was a passive intervention. And I don't have my head in a, in a rabbit hole still. I read what my profession is talking about in terms of the, uh, you know, calling manual therapy a low value intervention and creating dependency, et cetera. But, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that totally. I see a lot of darkness on both sides. I see a lot of exercise-based physical therapists who are, you know, you know they're, just, they're just pulling crap out of a file drawer and handing it to patients say he do this rote type of exercise and somehow acting self-superior than somebody who's using manual therapy as an intervention and i think there's bad apples in every crowd i find that people who gravitate toward me 
are looking for a manual therapy intervention, right? Maybe they've tried traditional PT and it didn't work, or they've tried traditional PT from a lazy PT who stood there with their arms crossed, right? And didn't really do anything. And they said, nobody ever really touched me. And, you know, you know the evidence. We don't have to do manual therapy. You don't have to touch to intervene. But there's some people that it hits that behavior, that expectation, the patient value and expectation of the evidence-based model, right? They're looking for somebody to physically interact with them. And that's that's kind of where I, I see manual therapy still as having a relevant and value-based place in, in the physical therapy, you know, in specific, but in therapies in the larger aspect. Don't do it in a, in a vacuum. Combine it with education. Combine it with exercise. And whether it's traditional strengthening and loading or, you know what, do you like to dance? Let's get out there and dance a little bit more. Let's make this meaningful and functional instead of me giving you a pile of stuff that you have no connection with, but I think it's important for you. So I apologize, Jeff. I kind of get off on tangents. I forgot where your original question was. Did I answer it? No, I think that very much so answers it. I think you can incorporate, I think you can maintain a lot of manual therapy in your practice. I often tell folks, because I hear the same thing you do on on the social media platforms, the real extreme anti-hands-on views. And I guess clinically, it doesn't resonate with me. I'm kind of like you in that I started off with a very passive sort of white knight, or you go in there with a cloak and fix it. You know, you, you find the passive fault and you fix the passive fault, the patient feels better. And this is kind of like the idea that it's linear in this way. And I think similar to you, I've learned a lot from those early years, but I still strongly feel that both from the examination to thoroughly examine someone, to lay your hands on someone's injured shoulder, to to give them that feeling of support and that you really felt around those areas they were struggling, there's a lot of therapeutic value to that and in the treatments. I've always said, well, if you really feel like your patients are all becoming externally focused from a locus of control perspective, because you're using manual therapy, you don't have a using manual therapy problem. You have a language problem. You're failing to set the expectations to your patient that, look, we're going to do a few a few tricks here to try to calm things down, change that nervous system processing so that we can load you up and get you functional. It's the way you explain it to them and how it becomes a part of the process. You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I agree 100%. And I think there's also a sense of patient validation that when we do lay that hand on them and say, do you mean right there? And there's that interpersonal connection that's made right there, where at least, I mean, okay, so this gets trite after a while, but how many times have you been told in your career, Jeff, that, you know what, my doctor never even touched me, right? We hear that and people say, well, it's not necessary anymore. But yet there's an aspect of the patient perspective that someone needs to at least listen to me and and feel what I'm feeling, right? At whatever whatever level that takes, right? And I think that sense of patient validation is often missing in somebody who's forcing nothing but exercise on somebody, right? They're as bad as me forcing nothing but manual therapy on somebody. We've all we've all got faults and we've all got you know strengths. I just I've really taken a look at the evidence-based model and I'm feeling like I think I'm actually following the evidence-based model a lot more than a lot of physical therapists because I think that one-third of the evidence-based model gets sort of brushed off, the patient perspective and values. And I think we say, oh, no, I ask the patient what they think and what they feel, et cetera, but I really don't know that we're giving it the weight that the model does, right? I mean, that's 33% is patient expectations and values and how how do we really honor that if we're just saying, you know what, you agree to do this or does this feel good or whatever? I just, I think it's really underplayed. And at least in terms of my practice, as well as the way I teach 
manual therapy with movement mixed in is to teach a patient-led perspective instead of an ego-led. And I call, okay, it's a little bit of judgment. I call what I learned, whether it's as a PT or a myofascial release therapist, is very ego-driven. It's all about what I know. It's all about what I learned. It's about my experience. And we're supposed to know enough to say what's wrong with the patient and what should be done with the patient. And that's where we get our, our ego gets in the way, I believe, right? I think that, yeah, I, I do know a lot. I've had a lot of experience in training, but I, you know, there's, there's things missing from there. I don't know what you're feeling. I don't know what you're fearing. I don't know what you're hoping for until we come into this in a therapeutic alliance and a partnership to say, whether it's exercise or manual therapy or just education, right? Does this feel right to you? And then let the patient make those decisions. You know, one thought I had on touch as you two were talking about this is there's another aspect of it, not only making the patient feel as if they're being heard and examined and red flags being rolled out and that kind of thing, but touch is also such a social thing and we're such social creatures and just the mere, the, I know a lot of people right now with this pandemic and quarantine are struggling because they are not allowed to touch other people. And I've seen this in the PT and massage therapy community that I'm plugged into on social media where some of these folks are really struggling because their whole job, their whole career, their not only their livelihood, but their purpose in life is so tied to touching people and they can't now and they're suffering. So for a patient to be in pain, they may be anxious, they may be isolated, they can't do the things that they enjoy doing in their communities, maybe they're at home all the time because of their pain. So to have someone touching them, I think we may be underestimating the contribution of just that social grooming to why manual therapy seems to work so well, especially for some people. Another reason not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, one of my mentors post-MFR is Diane Jacobs, who's all into so social grooming and touch-based and skin-based work. And a lot of people see Diane's world as being a little too narrow, think it's all about the skin, and then they're just showing me they don't really know what she's really standing for there. I love her simplistic model. You know what? We can only touch skin. Can we make? Can we explain why this is happening without going to all the hypothetical tissues and structures inside that we think we're affecting? And you know that concept of social grooming, be it through Diane or some of the other papers. And I'm in the midst of a since I've got nothing to do and, and no work right now. I'm doing a a full redo on my course syllabus. Plus, we're setting up a curriculum for a program over in the UK that's that's kind of exciting. But I'm bringing together a lot of evidence that I've not really read before. Christopher Moyer's work on effective massage therapy with an A, not an E, right? Saying, well, what do we know about massage? Even though people say it's all about the tissue, none of it's really been proven. But yet, there's really good evidence that the effective nature of it can have a lot of meaning. And that's, I think it ties in perfectly with the type of approach that I'm trying to put forth here that let's make the patient a full partner in this instead of being sort of an afterthought. And evidence-based model, we all know how it reads. We all know those three overlapping circles. But, you know, somehow, why is it that people can get on social media and beat the crap out of manual therapy evidence as if their evidence is so much better? But it's like, you know what? It's all out there. Sure, there's crappy evidence and there's good evidence, but there's good good evidence on the exercise aspect of it, and there's good evidence on the manual therapy aspect of it. What are some of the commonalities we can work together on instead of beating the crap out of each other in social media all the time? But I guess that's how some people get their publicity. 
Yeah, well, you mentioned Diane's work and interacting with the skin, and we really haven't talked a whole lot about that on this podcast. You know, we're obviously a podcast about pain, and we have a lot of patients who are listeners as well as clinicians and scientists and researchers. But I think this is an area that might benefit to spend just a minute or two exploring about that mechanism. I guess maybe tell us a little bit about dermoneuromodulation, DNM, and Diane's work and how you see that as fitting into this whole patient-centered paradigm. Okay. So I had the pleasure of taking one of Diane's earlier trainings in San Diego quite a while ago. And it was an interesting eye-opener for me because in a lot of ways, the work that Diane teaches visibly resembles the work I was doing for the past 25 years in mouthwash release. If you look at me across the room doing mouthwash release and her across the room doing dermoneuromodulation, it's like we're doing the same thing. We're doing similar handholds, similar things with our body, et cetera. It's only when you get closer and you hear the dialogue, right, of the explanation. That's where it's like two complete languages. But Diane's premise, and I don't want to speak for her, and she might be a good guest on the show at some point, is to, we're touching skin. Are there aspects of skin, whether it's neurological or social grooming, behavioral, et cetera, that can explain both the pain relief that we get from touch-based therapies, as well as some of the other benefits that we get to it as well. And a couple of her key points are, you know, the skin embedded mechanoreceptors, we're stimulating, we're waking them up every time we touch, every time we stretch, and whether we poke or prod or lift or, or rub or whatever, we're, you know, we're just affecting all those cutaneous mechanoreceptors, which are sending input to the brain for processing. And it's a basic premise that could that, maybe that is enough to at least elicit some of the changes peripherally that we're seeing. The other aspect of it is she has sort of adopted, adapted some of the neurodynamic concepts to speak about cutaneous nerve tunnel syndromes as well. And following on the same science that neurodynamic technique follows, it's like, well, okay, is this thick, grumpy area that everybody's got their name for it, no matter how you've been schooled, she calls it, you know, maybe it's just a thick, grumpy, cutaneous nerve tunnel syndrome that she's affecting and having the same neurological feedback through the, the nerve root up to the brain and back down through descending modulation. There's the short cliff notes versions of Diane's work. And I love the the simplicity of it and the, the very it's a very clean approach one that you can explain pretty quickly to a patient they may not totally get it or they may come in embedded and wedded to oh i've got trigger points or i've got you know muscle spasms and somebody's noceboed them to death and you, you know you got to kind of walk it away from them but sometimes that that simple explanation is enough to move the conversation forward and past that, okay, I have to explain what's wrong with you, but patient, how do you feel when I do this work, right? And I love to do that with patients. And whether I love to listen, I do the reflective listening where they come into us with a story, right? They come into us telling us about what their doctor said, what their other therapist said, what Dr. Google said, what their, their spouse said, right, about what's wrong with them. They come in with the story. And when I went from MFR, myofascial release, to a neurological base, I got really annoying because I basically stepped on and squashed people's stories when I didn't think they made sense. And that was a, that was a real stupid choice on my part because, number one, I don't know everything. And number two, I don't know your life and I've not lived it. So now I listen really 
hard and really softly for what you're telling me. And part of the story that I tell back to you is going to include some of the things you told me, but I'm always going to include another option, right? If you think, for instance, that your pain is caused from trigger points, okay, not an uncommon thing that people have told, I'll say, you know what? You know, you could be having pain from those trigger points that your doctor told you about, or it could be something else. It could be a neurologic remnant from a previous injury that maybe your brain and nervous system just hasn't let go of yet. And that's one of my favorite tools to use right there is give them not one, but two possibilities. Let them know that clinically there could be uncertainty and there is uncertainty, right? That ultimately it might be the trigger point. It might be a neurologic remnant, but can we see if we can do something which, which helps calm that fire, which helps you move easier and get back to the life you want to live, right? Instead of it being about me explaining what's wrong with you, let's the two of us come up with something that feels good to you. Walt, I love that idea of one more choice, you know, as opposed to you saying, okay, that's fine. You have that thought, but here's how it actually is more saying, you know, would you be willing to consider this as well? Not saying this is correct, but you know, can we put this out there and maybe get the ball rolling that there's multiple, at least options? Sure. Because, okay, so let's go over to the other end of the physical therapy profession. You go in with a problem and the patient says, well, you just got weakness. We need to strengthen you. I mean, that's as incorrect as me saying you've got trigger points, right? It truly is an incorrect assumption that you're having pain because you're weak, right? And then the PT says, oh, see, we did exercise. You got stronger and you feel better. I was right. No, you're not, right? There's so many factors involved there, but we're all dumbing it down. It's like, okay, it might be because you're weak, but it also could be this, this, and this. Are you Like you said, Jeff, are you willing to look at some other possibilities? And ultimately, we may not know, but I think that the two of us can work to make you feel better. And, and that's what you and I do for a living. Yeah, I think it's underestimated the tremendous power of just opening the door of consideration. And a lot of times on day one, even day two, you don't have to go further than that. But if you can just get the person from being hell-bent that they know what's going on, to, oh, maybe I'm not quite as sure as I thought I was. I wonder what else is out there. That's a massive shift. It is. It is. And you can't always accomplish it, right? Some of them, they leave after they're done with their therapy and they still think it's that thing that you think it isn't. But ultimately, you know, I'm not going to reinforce it, but I'm also not going to squash it because I've not lived their life. I don't know what they're feeling and what they're experiencing, right? And I never will. All we can do is ask a lot of questions and do a lot of listening and see if we can come up with a negotiated, you know, partnership on all of this. So, Walt, you mentioned, or we've been dancing around this topic of narrative, and I often think about narrative because just, for example, the relationship of weakness and pain or tightness and pain, we would take that thick, grumpy area and do something to it, and maybe it feels different to us afterwards. Maybe the patient feels different. Maybe they don't. Maybe they get better. But I think the tendency is, because we're human beings and we try to make meaning out of things. We try to make coherence out of things that we observe. We like to say, well, this happened because I did that or because the fascia moved or because the bone is back in place or you know, because the tendon is thicker or whatever. We like to say that. And that fallacy of equating the outcome that we're seeing with a mechanism, 
I think that's so implicit in medicine and rehab and a lot of other professions. And that's one of the biggest problems that I see. So with that in mind, a lot of the problematic narratives that patients are told come from that assumption, that fallacy of equating the treatment outcome with the mechanism of why we got that outcome. Now, with that said, do you think that it's important, obviously it's important for clinicians to know the more correct narratives or the more up-to-date narratives, but what do you see the advantages of a patient knowing a more accurate narrative? I love how some of probably our mutual colleagues or mutual friends on social media say you can't be always right, but you can try to be less wrong, right? Here are some less wrong reasons why, right? I think some patients can benefit from knowing a deeper answer, especially if if what they're walking into my clinic with, the information from wherever they got it from, doesn't seem to serve them, right? If it's planted full of nocebo, if someone sold them, right, sold them that if you don't continue to get treatment, you know, your back's going to fall off or whatever, right? I mean, people are told things to continue them coming to see a clinician. We all know that, right? We all try not to do it, but maybe we're still planting nocebos that might be doing that, right? Even though we're not supposed to. But I do think it definitely benefits it, at least. Okay, so I'm at least going to do due diligence to explain how I understand, number one, the body works and how I understand the human works and how I think it relates to what they're coming in with. People, they tell us that they're weak. They tell us that they're tight and that's why they're having pain. And, you know, it's like, okay, then I'll pull out a study and say, you know what? Tightness doesn't correlate, nor does weakness. And it's like, well, then you just, you just pop their bubble because that's what they believe. That's what I was talking about. At least getting them away from the edge of the cliff of that maybe more wrong belief and try and walk them into one that's less wrong. I may never fully get them to believe that they're not having pain or they're having pain because they're weak, but I'll let them know that there's other factors at play, right? I love to use simple explanations. Do weaker people have more pain than strong people, right? Because you're deconditioned, does that mean you hurt more, right? Because if you're going to follow that line of reasoning, then somebody who's out of shape should have more pain than somebody who's stronger. Now, I know that that's a, that's a very limited, there's, there's flaws in that little story I just told, right? But it's the same thing with tightness. And I'll tell this to my patients too. I could walk up to 10 people on the street and poke them in the shoulder. And if they didn't hit me for poking them, I'd feel some people that were really, really tight and some people that were really, really gushy. And I can guarantee you one thing, the gushy people don't have any less pain than the tight people, right? It's the bell curve. And some of, sometimes they believe me, sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't. If there's anything in the narrative that they're coming in with that seems that it's not in their best interest because somebody sold them on fear, right, then I'm going to have a conversation about it. I step very carefully about not trying to dismiss other professionals, even though sometimes they deserve a good spanking, right? In terms of selling fear, selling nocebo, but it gets done by a lot of people in a lot of ways without ever reeling it's a nocebo. That's so true. One of the things I've so appreciated about this conversation is this idea that you just have to win the battle. You don't have to win the war. You know, I think when we first start in patient care, it's not a win unless that person has completely reorganized their conceptions about what's going on. They're totally pain-free and they've qualified for the Olympics. You know, the, the, these just outlandish goals. Whereas when you've really been working with patients with pain for years and years, you begin to realize that you're just playing your role in being of a bit of use. They're engaging with you. You're, you're helping to 
change their narrative just a bit, get them a little bit fitter, you know, improve their lifestyle behaviors a touch, and then they're going to move on. Like you don't have to absolutely drastically and perfectly change their lives. You've just got to nudge them in the right direction you know, and not obsess about the perfect all the time. No. Because you know what? I, I could see somebody for 10 sessions and I give them my whole elevator speech. We start off with, well, they either come in because my website right now still says I do myofascial release because I'm waiting on some, believe it or not, some CEU approvals to get done so I can change my website officially. So they come in saying, oh, I, you know, I, I heard about myofascial release and I think my fascia is all tight and all that. And for a number of years now, I've been trying to sort of let people know that, well, those are nice metaphors, but they, they maybe are not as accurate as people think they are, right? And they'll nod at me and they'll listen to my story over the course of a number of sessions. And, you know, we'll talk about other things that it could be behind besides the fashion and everything. And maybe we're on their final visit. They're doing great. And they're saying, you know what? Thanks for taking care of my fascia. And it's like the realization that it's like, okay, did I fail or was I not meant to win that one, right? They walked out of the room feeling better, but maybe not totally convinced that it wasn't their fascia or their trigger point or their weak core or whatever that might be, right? We do our best and we try and practice ethically as well as humanistically. I just had one last thought on that. You guys are talking and I'm thinking to myself, as long as you think that you're broken, you'll keep looking to be fixed. And that is where I see the the biggest importance of narrative in this whole space is convincing patients that maybe you're not broken. I mean, just think about that. Maybe you're not broken. Maybe there's more right here than there is wrong here. And maybe all we need is a little bit of tweaks. We need to get you desensitized, built back up. So that's my perspective on narrative. And I think that that's a point where I'll sometimes pull out some evidence and I'll, I keep photocopies of papers to say, you know, the, the studies that we've all seen about just because you have a bulging disc doesn't mean that that's why you're having pain. And that's the moment right there when we're trying to talk to them about maybe you're not quite as broken as you thought you were. And we have to walk a line with that because a lot of people, that's the reason they want to own that. I have a bulging disc, therefore, that's why I'm having pain. And we have to figure out that place to be in the middle where, you know what, it could be that, but it could be some other things too, right? And that's where, you know, this isn't just a a robot job that any of us are doing. We're working with human beings and we have to figure out a humanistic way to go about that. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Walt, thank you for all the insight. It's wonderful to talk to folks who have who have been through so, you know, different paradigms and stayed in the clinic and just continue to work to help folks move forward. And I, I really can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Do you mind spending just a minute, Walt, and just kind of let folks know where to find you as far as where to find your seminars, websites to go to, maybe even an email where folks could reach out to you, just um, some way if somebody has their interest peaked that they could follow up on that? Absolutely. The absolute easiest way is my name, Walt, W-A-L-T, waltfritz.com. That's the easiest way to find me in terms of the seminars that I teach. I, up until this point in history, have a fairly robust traveling schedule in the United States and Canada, as well as abroad, teaching primarily my voice and swallowing classes, which is open to anybody with an interest in that, not just speech pathologists. We get a lot of interesting people there, but also have the practice there in the Rochester, New York area that's linked from the website as well. Emails there, everything else is there as well. So like I said, that just a moment ago, the website's a little behind the times. This is what's coming out of my mouth right now. And that's been dictated by CEU approvals and lack of that and just the weirdness of all that. So but I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, and I'm, I'm honored that you thought I had something of interest to say, so I hope it was useful. It was fantastic. Thanks so much, Walt. Thank you. 
Wow. What a, what a great conversation with Walt Fritz. Just so cool when people have stayed in the clinic for so many years and looked at things from very different dimensions. Only then can you really get an idea of the directions that we need to go to really serve people who are having a hard time. And I think that Walt's perspective is invaluable. At a time like this, where viewpoints seem to be swinging in such extreme ways, to have somebody who's got maybe, or has had at least a foot in both buckets, to be able to give some reason to those emotions is invaluable. So wonderful conversation. Everyone, thanks for being here. Always check out Pain Reframes Facebook group. But as always, EIM, evidenceinmotion.com, all the courses, everything you want is there. Go check it out and we'll see you next time in the next episode of Pain Reframes.